Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. My name is Keisha, and I live by the Word of God. You know, my earlier walk with the Lord, um, I knew God's Word, I I knew the stories, I memorized Scripture, but it was more of a to-do, a task, a daily thing I did versus just what I lived by. And so, you know, I came to this like fork in the road in my walk with the Lord, where life was difficult, Um, I was questioning so many different things, and I actually started to question, is God who He really says He is? And so I said, man, I need to really discover who God is. And so I really dove into the Word of God, really just to find out who God is. And what I discovered is that He is who He says He is. And in doing that, in finding out who He is, I really discovered who I am in the process. And man, it has been just life transforming to my walk. Like the Word of God is living, it's breathing. Man, it has guided my life. It's something I can stand on. And so, man, that's why I live by God's Word. Amen. Is anybody excited to be at church today? Welcome to Vox Church. If you're new to Vox, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor. Thank you for being here. I am excited to be with you today. The sun is shining and uh, Jesus is Lord. Hey, I had such an incredible, joy-filled celebration with you all last week. And I just want to say thanks for being a part of our Easter services. Just amazing miracles all the way God is working. We start a new teaching series today called Convictions. Everybody say Convictions. Conviction, eight weeks, we're going to be looking at exploring the fundamental truths of our faith, the foundations of our faith. Before we dive into that, I know you get a lot of announcements here, but May 7th, a date I'm excited about. We have the first gathering in 2022 of what we call our legacy team. During our Wake My Heart series over two years, we developed a team of highly committed, passionate people who want to see the gospel advance specifically through this area of generosity. I want to be generous and I want to lead the way in generosity. If that's something that intrigues you, that you feel called towards, you can text the word called to 97000, 97,000, or just ask people at our Next Steps table. On May 7th, we have a gathering of what's called our legacy team. It's going to be awesome. And so today we start this series, eight weeks long, looking at the foundational convictions. And you'll notice that a lot of things right now at Vox are kind of aligning with this, with what's happening with kids. Vox Institute, our community groups are walking through Bible study methods. But one thing I want to highlight and invite you to be a part of is over the next eight weeks, really nine, we're going to read through the New Testament together. And so if you got this card when you walked in, I encourage you to keep it and join us, all right? And so every single day, reading through the Bible, really just uh, becoming more and more familiar with the teachings and the writings of the New Testament. And so join us in this. It outlines what to read each day. And uh, it's one of the ways that we can kind of develop and grow in our convictions together. So if you didn't get a card, make sure you grab one on your way out. And if you did, I encourage you, participate with us. Be a part of it. First Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to teach this morning really from one verse. And uh, it's a powerful one. It says this, And we also thank God constantly. This is verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, 
but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Talk a few moments today under the heading, This I Believe. This I Believe. Let's pray, church. Open our hearts to God. Lord, we thank you for the presence of Jesus here right now, the privilege to lift you up in song and to gather around your word. I pray that you would teach us today. I know we all come in different walks of life, different backgrounds, different circumstances, but I pray that you'd meet us in a profound way and draw us closer to you. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Deeply held beliefs, convictions, values, standards. Where do your convictions come from? Have you ever thought about where they grow out of or what your core convictions even are? What, is, what are the convictions that you're willing to die for? What are the convictions that you're willing to live for? I heard a story recently in the news about Graham and Cheryl Anley. This happened a little while ago, but I just read it this week. They were sailing off the coast of South Africa on their yacht when a storm blew in and their yacht capsized. It flipped over. And they were on the boat alone with their dog, Rosie, their nine-year-old Jack Russell Terrier. And so uh, Rosie, the dog, and Cheryl, the wife, got trapped underneath the boat. And Graham, the husband, swam over to help them. And he, true, true story, he chose to free Rosie first, get her to safety, and then go back for his wife, Cheryl, okay? And so uh, both were saved, thank God, but it's clear who the priority was. I can't even imagine that moment. You know, honey, help. All right, I'll be back in a minute. Just, 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 you know, like this is a true story. Like <laughs> I, it seems that we're living in a time where we're slightly confused about our convictions. Some of you are like, no, that's what I would have chose. Okay, we have, we have marriage counseling here at Vox as well. And so if that's something that applies to you, well, maybe you should check that out. But, but you know, where do our convictions come? Some people have really strong convictions. You've met this person. You might be sitting next to this person. Really strong convictions. Oh, I'll tell you about this. I'll tell you about They'll tell you how it is about every single area of life. They have a strong conviction about everything. But when you ask them about why, oftentimes those convictions are an inch and a half deep, right? There's not a lot of deep thought or, you know, really consideration for why. And those convictions often change, you know? Other people, they don't have such, such strong convictions, but they have deep convictions, but their deep convictions are about trivial things, you know? And so in other words, I'm really passionate about this sports team. I'm really convicted about this cooking show. I'm really passionate about this car or this video game, or all these other things. This is what is so important to me. But I don't give a whole lot of space to think about God, or my purpose, or death, significant things in life. But I think the most popular philosophy when it comes to convictions is to be a renter. Does anybody remember Blockbuster Video way back in the day, right? Where you used to go and you'd say, I'll rent this for three days and I'll bring it back to you, you know? And uh, some of you are like, Blockbuster, no, never mind. Doesn't even matter. But, um, but, you know, a renter is somebody who just tries something out and then returns it, you know? And so I'll just try this out. I'll try that out. I feel like a lot of us, you know, when it comes to our convictions, we're just like, well, I'm the perpetual skeptic. I don't believe anything deeply. I kind of have a, a little belief about this or that, but I'm not ready to, like, die for it. I'm not ready to, like, give my life for it. And what you find is, though, that might be appealing on the outside. It's hollow on the inside. Because when you don't have deep convictions, you'll really struggle in life to find deep meaning, deep relationships, and deep love. You'll get stuck on the surface of life. Because if you have nothing that you're willing to die for, it's very difficult to find something to live for. And so a lot of us, we've been collecting convictions. 
You know, it reminds me of the trunk of my car. You know, it's like I'm collecting, like, I got jumper cables. I got a sweatshirt that I don't even know where it came from. I got a water bottle. I got some books I never read, all, like, in papers and all mixed up in the trunk of my car. And that's kind of how a lot of our convictions are. You know, you got something you picked up from mom or something you picked up from dad, and, and those are some family convictions that you brought in. But then there's the culture and the cynicism and the skepticism of our day, and so that's kind of a part of your convictions. But then you look at the music you're listening to and the friends that you have and, and fashion and media and, and all the advertising that's telling you you deserve this and so that kind of adds in and and some of us we've just watched way too many Disney movies and so we think that like there really is a, a perfect person out there that if I could just meet them all my life would fit into place and nothing would be difficult and maybe you're in the middle of a relationship right now and it's really really hard and you're surprised by that because you've got this philosophy from a hundred rom-coms that it's just all gonna work out and it ain't working out and you're wondering why it's so tough our convictions all mixed together we have this experience where we're hot and then we're cold, we're angry, and then we're despondent, you know? We're passive, and then we're passionate, and, and it's all back and forth because we don't really know what our convictions are. And um, our culture teaches us that, you know, if you really want to have deep convictions, you got to find them within, you know? Figure out what you're passionate about. Figure out what your purpose is, and then go out and live it. Go out and experience it. And the problem, if you ever try that, is that finding your convictions from within, you discover that your convictions from within keep changing. And so one minute you think it's this, and the next minute you think it's that, and the next minute you think it's this, you're trying to find, but your feelings shift, and, and your desires change, and they're inconsistent, and you finally obtain that thing you thought that would be so important. You got that degree, you finally landed that job, you're finally married, but it's not at all what you thought it was gonna be. And so now it's like, well, I don't guess that wasn't it. And so, and so a lot of us, if we're honest, we're making up our convictions as we go. And it's kind of like, well, I'll just try a little bit of this. A little bit of that a few months ago, uh, one of the doors in the closet of my house uh, snapped off. And so every one of our, our rooms, we have these closet doors that kind of slide, you know, like a typical closet door. And, uh, and, and, so, and so one of them in my daughter's room, it broke off. And so Chrissy asked me, she said, hey, can you fix that? Which is like a real step of faith for her to ask that because this is not my gift mix. But I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I can fix it. It's not gonna be a problem. So I get in there with my drill gun. It's like the one tool I have, you know? And so like I have a drill gun and, uh, and, some, and some screws and I'm, I'm just like, vroom, vroom, just like putting screws in it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just definitely screwing this up, literally trying to, you know? And so I, I did and it was good for like a day. And then it just, just fell off, you know? I was like, okay, that didn't do it. And so I went on Amazon. It's embarrassing to even tell you this, but it's true. I went on Amazon and I bought just the, the first and the cheapest, you know, uh, hinge system available on Amazon. Okay, it was like 20 bucks. I just bought this hinge, you know, like this, this hinge system. I didn't even check to see, is it the one that's on the door? Will it fit with this door? I didn't check any of that. I figured I'll just, you know, I'll just kind of mix and match it. And that's what I did. I, I mixed and matched it with the one that was there, but the track is a different size. So the door sits on a track on the top and, and it didn't fit in the track. And so I'm kind of like, I'm like Jimmy rigging it and like, you know, like put it, and like again, two hours later, I'm not exaggerating, two hours of my precious God-given life later, this door still will not hang. This week I had a breakthrough. I discovered what manufacturer made the hardware on the door. I bought that hardware and in 20 minutes, put it on, replace the broken parts, and the door magically works. I'm very excited about it. Thank you. I appreciate the support. Very impressed. Chrissy, not so much. But, uh, but you know, you might be here and you're like, well, that's a silly story. Well, you know, sometimes our life is a silly story, right? Because we're mixing and matching, making it up as we go, and things keep falling off and we're not sure why, you know? 
And uh, it's going to keep breaking until you submit to the designer, until you confront an uncomfortable truth, and that is that um, the designer's way is, is better than mine. Huh. Oh, that's not, I don't like that. I don't like that. Um, that I don't get to decide how things should work, that there is a truth that's bigger than me, there is a truth that's above me, and life only works when I build my life around that truth rather than expecting that truth to build itself around me. Little history lesson, right? You maybe you remember in the 1500s, the scientific community operated on what's known as a geocentric perspective, okay? This means that they, they operated from the assumption that the planets and the moon and the sun all revolve around the earth, okay? So all of our formulas, all of our data, all of our investigations were built around this philosophy. And it wasn't until this time period in the 1500s where Copernicus stepped up and said, wait a minute, guys, I think all the evidence is actually pointing in a different direction. I don't think that, that, that we're the center of the universe and everything's revolving around us. I actually think it's the sun. I think the sun, which is way bigger than we are, is, is really what everything's revolving around. And we're just one rock, a, bu- a bunch of rocks revolving around the sun. And people weren't very comfortable with that opinion. It took us out of the center of the equation. But as soon as we did it, we started realizing that our formulas started working, that all of our equations started adding up because we had embraced reality. And even though we liked the idea of earth being at the center, when we embraced the reality that earth was not at the center, things started working. Things started fitting together. You know exactly where I'm going. In the same way, Christianity is a Copernican revolution of the heart. Christianity teaches that there's a God and that he's bigger than I am. He is the designer. He is the manufacturer, not here to bless me, help me, heal me, and fix me, but rather I am here to serve and honor him. He's the son in the universe, and life starts working when I revolve my life around what he says. So where do my convictions come from? Are they what I think and what I feel and what I prefer, or are they what he thinks? and what he feels, and what he prefers. And it was this fundamental conviction that inspired the early church fathers to write what's known today as the Apostles' Creed. Have you ever read the Apostles' Creed? Some of us are like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember. Like, If you're like me, I never read the Apostles' Creed growing up. The only creed I knew was Apollo Creed, and he had nothing to do with this, I, I didn't know, I really, I didn't, I didn't know any of it. There was no, I didn't know the Apostles' Creed, but the Apostles' Creed is a summary of the foundational doctrines of the church, okay? And so it's not in the Bible. It was written after the Bible. It was first called the Rule of Faith in about 180 AD. It appears on the scene of history. And the Apostles' Creed for nearly 2,000 years has served as a clear, concise summary of what Christians believe. I want to read it to you today. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. 
Amen. Now, people have read that through the centuries, and you might read it today, and you go, wait a minute, I didn't know we were Catholic. Like, wait, what was that? And, and so that, this was written before the Roman Catholic Church, right? That word Catholic actually means unified. It means united church, the one universal church. And this is not everything Christians believe, but it is the essentials of what Christians believe. Think of it like this. If the Bible is the great story to the world of God, the Apostles' Creed are the cliff notes, all right? And if you're like me, you had to get through school with some cliff notes. Thank God for the cliff notes, right? The cliff notes weren't written by the author, but they're a summary of what the author has said, okay? And so if you want to just get a big picture of the overarching truths, go to the cliff notes. The cliff notes can be very helpful for building a framework. And so in the Apostles' Creed, we see the Trinity, we see creation, we see the incarnation, we see the Holy Spirit, a theology of the church, redemption, and eternal hope. And so for the next eight weeks, as we walk through this series on convictions, we're going to study the Apostles' Creed line by line, connecting it back to the truths taught in the Bible. And what you'll discover is it's very helpful because the Apostles' Creed, as it has through history, forms for us a framework for convictions and helps your heart and your faith cultivate symmetry. So that person next to you and tell them, you need some symmetry. Symmetry, symmetry, symmetry. What is symmetry? Symmetry is the proper balance between the various truths of God's Word, okay? So symmetry means that I don't overemphasize one thing to underemphasize another. Like, let me give you some examples, right? So you might say, I really have a real conviction about Jesus, my personal Lord and Savior. That's a very popular Christian conviction today. That's awesome. But do you have a deep theology or a conviction about the holy unified church? Is it important to you to be a member? Is it important to you to be committed to a local community or a body? Do you have a theology that supports that? And does it bring symmetry to your understanding of Jesus, my personal Savior? You might believe in the forgiveness of sins. God bless you. It's important. It's in the creed, right? The forgiveness of sins. But do you understand that one day you'll stand before God who will judge the quick and the dead? That you will stand before him. And does that judgment seat of Christ inform the way you live today? Symmetry, right? Symmetry. One, one preacher I heard described it like, uh, the guy at the gym who skips leg day all the time, right? Like you all know that guy, right? He's looking good. You might be that guy. Like he's looking good, you know? He's got like chest day down. Chest day is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, right? And then it's all fine. But like leg day is like, mm, I'm not doing leg day, right? I'm all chest day. And so that's great. Your chest is really strong. But the problem is someone can walk up to you and go, boop, and you're going to fall over right? And so your lack of symmetry has cost you strength because you didn't, you didn't fill yourself out, right? In the same way, the Apostles' Creed helps us cultivate symmetry. It helps us cultivate symmetry, but that's not all it does. It also connects us to the family of God through history, the global movement known as the church, Okay, because the Apostles' Creed, some of us don't realize this, you know, there were martyrs hundreds of years ago, you know, tied to a stake, losing their lives as the flames surrounded them, and those martyrs were speaking forth the Apostles' Creed as they died. I believe in God, our Father, Almighty maker of heaven and earth, that there have been little kids in a village in Africa and a mountain in China and, and the green fields of Scotland and all over the world through history who have looked to this creed as a summary of the great convictions of our faith. And so understanding the creed connects us to that global body, that people of God. 
And some of us, we think of our faith and we're like, no, Justin, it's just me and Jesus. No, it's not. It's not just you and Jesus. And if you want to know Jesus, Jesus is the second person of the triune God. He himself is community. And to know him, you must know him in the context of his global church. And so every week we explore a new section of the creed starting this week. And uh, today we'll begin with the very beginning of the creed. And we're just going to take a very, very short chunk. I believe. That's our chunk for today. Pretty ambitious. We won't go that slow the whole time, I promise. <laughs> we're not going to do two words the whole time. We'll, we'll speed it up a bit. But the first one we thought would be appropriate to start with I believe. And I think that's a good, that's a good place to start because, you know, it's a good question for you. I don't know your background, your history. I don't know your story, and each of us has our own, but I wonder, do you believe? And do you, do you know what you believe? Because Christians don't just believe in belief, you know? That's kind of a popular idea. Like, well, I'm just going to believe in belief. Like, it's just a good thing to have belief in your life. Okay, fine, but what you believe in is actually important too. And so what do you believe in? And who do you believe in? And what we believe, I believe in God. That's how the, tree, that, how the creed goes. I believe in God, Father Almighty. And it begins to describe the God who is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. I believe in a God who is three and one. I believe in a God who is plural and singular. I believe in a God who's individual and community. I believe in the mysterious Trinity, the triune God. That's the God in which I believe. And I believe that that God, the triune God, has in fact spoken. And his primary method for speaking was not angels or a cloud in the sky, although God has done both of those. His primary method for speaking was flawed, imperfect people. People. And those people wrote down the words of God, and God preserved those words so that I could read them today. And they're in this book called the Bible. See, trusting the Bible is at the very heart of the Christian faith. And I think a lot of Christians... Um, we don't really have a conviction about that. You know, like, do you, do you trust the Bible? Well, yeah. Do you trust it as God's word to you? Well, I think, but, I mean, we've all heard people say, well, you can't take the Bible literally, right? You can't take the Bible literally. It's, it's full of errors. It's been changed through the centuries. I mean, they're good stories, but it can't really be trusted, you know? And so you can't really, I mean, it's, a, it's, like, it's like fables, it's myths. It's, they're nice ideas, and maybe they'll be axioms for your life, but, but you can't be building your whole life on the Bible. You can't, you can't trust it like that, you know? And I, I found oftentimes that those who say that, having talked to hundreds of hundreds of people through the years about the Bible, most of the time, those who say that haven't actually read the Bible themselves. A lot of times when people come to that conviction, it's because they watched a Netflix documentary, you know, and it's like, I watched it, and so now I'm an expert on the Bible, but, but they haven't actually explored its history or its origins. And so take a moment and just reflect on the Bible. It was written three different languages in three different continents over 1,600 years by at least 40 authors. Some of the authors were powerful people like kings and princes. Others were very, very poor seemingly insignificant people. Some were prophets, some were soldiers, some were prisoners. One was a doctor. The Bible has thousands of prophecies in it. Not sure if you know. Over 300 just about the Messiah in which Jesus fulfilled. Many of the prophecies across the scriptures have already been fulfilled. Historians and archaeologists tell us that, that every New Testament book was written before 80 AD. Now that's important because that's within 50 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so one way historians gauge reliability 
of any ancient text is to look at the number of matching manuscript copies, okay? And so if multiple copies of any ancient document are found over a large geographical area and they date back to the era, the era of the original writing, this will tell us that what we have is actually what was originally written down. Because some would say, oh, well, the, the New Testament has been changed through the years. They've developed through the years. Well, well, we have more New Testament manuscripts than any ancient document in history. We've discovered over 20,000 New Testament manuscripts to date. And so what that tells us is not necessarily that everything in the New Testament is true, but simply that everything that we are reading today in the New Testament was in fact what was written down those first few years that Jesus died, rose from the grave, and the disciples began to record their experiences. And for those who are actually willing to take the time and the attention to explore the Bible, a new conviction will begin to form that this book does not have 40 authors. It has one author. And it doesn't tell multiple stories. It tells, it tells one story when you start to see the connections. There's one, and then there's two, and then there's 10, and then there's 1,000, and then there's 10,000, and then there's 100,000. When you start to see the connections, that in the beginning of the book, the curse comes upon humanity. And God speaks to Adam and says, because of your sin, thorns and thistles, the earth will reap. And by the sweat of your brow, you will work all the days of your life. But then it speaks of a second Adam, Christ, the representative man who came to replace our relationship with God and restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And those Roman soldiers didn't even know it. But when they took the crown of thorns and put it on his brow, they were actually speaking prophetic that the thorns of Adam were now put on the brow of Christ because he would on the cross become the sin of the world so that we could become the righteousness of God. And you start to see the connections and you begin to realize this book wasn't written by any man. Have you ever read Psalm 22? Written by David, Psalm 22, hundreds of years before the Persians even invented crucifixion, David describes crucifixion line by line. He says, they pierced my hands and my feet. My bones are out of joint. My mouth is dry. Speaking of exactly Christ's experience, and the psalm begins with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that Christ spoke out of his mouth as he hung on the cross. You start to see it's one story. It's one story. And you begin to realize that the puzzle pieces fit together so profoundly and that the men that wrote this book weren't telling you about fables and myths. This is how Peter said it in 2 Peter 1. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter died for that statement, by the way. He said, this is real. I'm not making this up. This is real. The more you see the pieces fit together, the more you realize this book is special. God breathed. People wrote. I love what the old preacher Charles Spurgeon said. Look at this. He said, there seems to me to have been twice as much done in some ages in defending the Bible as in expounding it. But if the whole of our strength shall henceforth go to the exposition and spreading of it, we may leave it pretty much to defend itself. I do not know whether you see that lion. It is very distinctly before my eyes. A number of persons advance to attack him while a host of us would defend him. Pardon me if I offer a quiet suggestion. Open the door and let the lion out. 
He will take care of himself. Why? They are gone. He no sooner goes forth in his strength than his assailants flee. The way to meet infidelity is to spread the Bible. The answer to every objection against the Bible is the Bible. Have you explored it? Have you seen its glory, its wonder, its beauty, its majesty? See, the Bible and faith, they're not against reason. God uses reason to lead us to himself, but then he transcends our reason and speaks to our souls. He speaks to the core of who we are, the essence of how he made us, the manufacturer's design on the inside of us, and he reveals to us a God that cannot be concocted by the minds of man, a God who is so unexpected and so stunning and so contradictory and yet so perfectly harmonized that he resonates deep in your soul. You know, over the last few weeks, me and my three-year-old daughter have been watching a lot of Cinderella. And it's not my favorite movie, but it's her favorite movie right now. So Cinderella it is. Every version. We've got all the Cinderella versions going at various times. And, and the other day, we're watching Cinderella, her and I. And there's that scene, you've seen it, where, you know, they're at the ball. And all the maidens are before the prince. And they're all dancing. And they're all, they're all performing. And, you know, and they're all just trying to get his attention, trying to get his attention. A thousand options, right? A thousand options. And then in, she walks. And the moment she steps foot in the room, he is stunned. He is undone. And everything goes silent. He says, who's that? Who is that? Who is that? You know, this world offers a thousand options, a thousand things to believe, a thousand convictions to embrace. But in the midst of a crowded room where all the maidens clamor for your attention, there is one, namely Christ, that when he walks in, when he steps in and your eyes meet, convictions begin to grow. I love how John said it. In him was life. How do I even put this into words? And his life was the light. He was life. Oh, if you could just see him. If you could just recognize, oh, how casually we've taken his approach. If you could just see him. I love how the soldiers respond when they're sent to go arrest Jesus. They come back empty-handed. The religious leaders are furious. And they say, hey, we sent you to go arrest him. Why didn't you arrest him? And all they could say is, no one's ever spoken like he does. I don't even, I, eh, we don't know. But he's just different. He's just different. One theologian called it God's peculiar glory. I wonder if you've sensed it, if you've seen it. I wonder if it's cultivated in you a great conviction. Look at what he said. He said, what is distinctly stunning, indeed self-authenticating about the Christian God is that he wins the praise of his majesty, not by amassing slave labor to serve him, but by becoming a servant to free the slaves of sin. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Does your soul resonate with it? convictions. This God's not what you expected. This God's not what you and I would have created. He's not a Zeus. He's not an Apollos. He's not what others have created, but he's exactly what your heart needs. He's the lion and the lamb, the creator and the comforter, the transcendent king and the present help. And he's the father that your soul has been searching for. And as you see him and sense him and experience him through his word, something grows inside of you. Conviction. I, I believe. I believe. 
I believe. I want to tell you, you're never going to have all your questions answered. Reason will bring you to the door, but you're going to have to take a step of faith. You're going to have to risk. You're going to have to decide, do I really believe that this is the word of God? Because there are elements of it that you're not going to understand. I love Billy Graham's story about this, the great preacher who came to a place where he had studied out the Bible's historicity and all of the details and nuances of the construction of the text and all these various things, and he had questions. He didn't have every one of his, his questions answered, but he finally walked out in the woods one day, well-educated, very successful, but wrestling with, can I trust my life to this book? And he put the Bible on a stump, and he said to God, God, I don't understand everything in this book. God, not everything about this book makes sense to me, but I'm going to risk right now. I'm going to trust that I've seen enough, that I've experienced those connections enough to know that I'm willing to trust you. I believe. I believe. It includes reason. It includes risk. But it also includes another element, an important element, a supernatural element. And that's why Paul thanks God in 1 Thessalonians 2. Did you recognize that? Look at it with me. He says this. He says, but we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You accepted it as the word of God. Paul, why, why are you thanking them? Why, why, why are you thanking God? You Shouldn't you be thanking them, right? Like they're the ones that accepted the word. So you'd expect him to go, hey, I'm so grateful that you, that you accepted this as God's word. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says, I'm so grateful to God, not to you, but to God, that you accepted it. Well, why are you thankful to God? Because trusting in God's word uses our reason and uses, and, and we must embrace risk. But there's this other piece, this other piece. Call it revelation, that God must open your eyes that God must remove the blinders from your eyes so that your heart can see. This is what Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 when he said, I pray that God would open the eyes of your heart, that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Maybe you've experienced that. I know I have, where there was a time where the Bible was boring and cold, where I could care less, but then something changed. You ever experienced that? Something changed, and all of a sudden now, it's not boring and cold. It's the most exciting text on the planet. It has absolutely reconstructed my worldview. It has changed my life. Everything about my life is different because what God has spoken through his word and what changed, God opened my eyes. Yes, reason played a part and risk played a part, but in the end, there was a revelation, an awakening, an awareness where I could see, and from that sight, a new conviction was born, I believe. And from now on, here's the step. God's word is over my life. I am not the center of this universe. His word is over my life. Do you live from that conviction? Paul says, thank God, because God did it. That's why I'm thanking him that you accepted the word as God's word. You accepted it. That word accepted infers hospitality. That's what it means. It means come inside, sit down at the table, at the front and the head of the table. We've prepared a room for you. Everything's gonna be based around you. You're our guest. We've accepted you. We've welcomed you. Have you, pre have you embraced the word like that? I accept you as the living word. And this is where Christian conviction begins. And as we look over these next eight weeks, 
on the convictions found in the Apostles' Creed, they all root back to this conviction. That God's word has the final authority in my life. And I just want you to take a moment right now and reflect on your life. Is that how you live? Is that how you live? That when God's word offends your word, which one wins? When it contradicts your preference, when it doesn't make sense, when it corrects you, how do you approach the Bible? And I think for somebody here, you might be like, this is crazy. Do people actually do this? Are you serious? You want me to take an ancient book and base my whole life on it and submit to it and surrender to it? Are you kidding me? I don't want to do that. I want to figure out my own convictions, build them from within, let my heart be my guide. That's how I want to do things. Well, I wonder, I wonder if that's why your doors keep falling off. I wonder if that's why you're having a hard time getting through that depression, getting through that fear, finding purpose. I wonder if that's actually at the root of your issues. You thought it was that other person. You thought it was your circumstances. You thought it was the place you're living. You thought it was your family. You thought it was a lot of things. And maybe they all played a part, but maybe there's something underneath the surface. Maybe this lack of conviction about God's word is what's really hindering you from being able to see. My freshman year in high school, I took Mrs. Johnson's psychology class. And I sat in the back with my friend Dave Pegnataro. And we sat in the back. And it was an annoying class because Mrs. Johnson wrote very lightly on the blackboard. And we were sitting in the back. And I remember just raising my hand and being like, excuse me, I'm sorry, Mrs. Johnson. Could you, could you press down a little harder on the chalk? Because you're writing, and I, we just can't read it back here. It's just so faint. And she, she said, okay, boys. And, you know, and, and I asked Dave, I said, Dave, can you read it? He's like, I can't read it. She, you know, she's barely even touching the, the chalkboard with that, with that chalk. Man, you got to press down a little bit. You help us out in the back. You know? And so we had the first few classes, we had a couple of arguments. And finally, one day, I raised my hand and said, I'm sorry, you're, you're, doing, it, you're doing it again, Miss Johnson. You're killing us back here. And we're trying to pass the class. And you know, could you just press down? And she finally, she looked back, and she said, she said uh, young man, I think you need to get your eyes checked. And I was like, how dare you? So I did. I went and got my eyes checked. And uh, the next week, me and Dave Pingataro both came back wearing glasses. Um, so I guess it wasn't the chalk that was the problem. I guess it was me. But glasses, just I just couldn't. They just bothered my face. I don't know what, what it was. It just like, I, I, they slide, and it just messed me. And so I was like, I got to figure out something else. And so I got contacts. I got contacts. I'm sure a lot of us here, we wear contacts. And so, you know, I wore contacts for every day of my life because I really wasn't comfortable in glasses. And so contacts all through my teenage years, contacts all through my 20s, contacts through uh, my early 30s. And then in 2020, ironically, 2020, uh, when the vision's supposed to be clearest, my eyes started burning and itching. And so I tried different contacts. I tried breathable ones. And, and these ones sing. And these ones dance. And none of them worked. They all bothered my eyes. They all itched. Somehow I had built up in my body a rejection of the plastic being stuck in my eye. And so everything I tried just bothered my eye, bothered my eye. And so I, I wore glasses for a while. I thought, I'll, I'll just get used to them. It's not a big deal. I couldn't get used to them. They kept bothering me. Finally, I'm at the eye doctor and he says, listen, here's the deal. Your eyes just will not take on contact lenses. So you can wear glasses for the rest of your life or you can get LASIK surgery, which is expensive and you have to get shot in the face with a laser. So whatever you decide, that's your choice. And I'm like, ugh. I don't like either of those choices. I don't want to do that. And so I went back and forth and I talked to Chrissy about it and I said, what should we do? And, and you know, I'm not sure. And, and, and finally, we just said, you know what? 
uh, months, months, months later, what if we, what if we, you know, it's going to be financially tricky and all these things. And we finally said, you know, we're going to do it. I'm, I'm going to get LASIK surgery. And so I sit in the chair and I'm there and uh, the doctor straps me down, which was a little uncomfortable because I was like, hmm, is this, am I Frankenstein? Like you're strapping me down right now. Okay, am I getting electrocuted? Like what's going on? And so they strap me down. They're like, all right, hold still. And, uh, and, and I'm there sitting there and the doctor's standing over me. And I'm thinking, you know, I really hope he doesn't mess up right now. You know, like, I'm not sure about all this. I know that the, many people have had it done, but I'm not many people. I'm me, and he's going to shoot me in the eyes with a laser right now, and that feels unwise in some ways, right? And in a matter of seconds, you know, um, the doctor cut pieces of my cornea off. They bandage up your eyes, and you leave, and and it's like, I'd love to say like, hey, everything was great. No, actually, everything wasn't great. My eyes burned, my vision was blurry, I still couldn't see, everything was sensitive. And that was the first day, and then there was the second day, and then there was the third day, and then there was the fourth day, and, and it, was, it was slow, it was progressive. And little by little by little, my vision kept getting sharper and sharper, and the pain kept getting less and less. And the wound that the doctor inflicted on my eye began to heal. After a few months, I went to the eye doctor again to get my eyes tested, and they sat me down, and I've failed eye tests my whole life, you know, and so I'm kind of used to it. I don't know why, you know, any of us take pride in passing an eye test, but we're all like, you know, I'm going to pass, you know, and it's like, just whatever. But I'm there, and I'm, 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 not, I'm not squinting. I'm not doing any of that. I'm, I'm just like, I'm just able to read it. And so they put up 2020, and I just read it. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. And I'm like, you know, that was really easy. Is there anything better than 2020? And I didn't know. And, and so the girl, she's like, or like her fifth, third day there. And she's like, uh, yeah, there's 2010, but we're really not supposed to test people for 2010. And I'm like, well, is it on the machine? She's like, well, yeah. I'm like, well, can you just put it up real quick and let me just check it out. And like, it's like robot vision. And, and so she, she tests me for 2010 and I just like, just read it. She's like, I never met anybody with 2010. I'm like, I can see ants on trees hundreds of miles away. Like, this is crazy. I'm like an eagle now. It's amazing. The doctor comes in. He's like, hey, who tested you for 2010? I'm like, oh, that was definitely my fault. I'm sorry. But, but the doctor restored my sight, but I had to submit to his process, right? And so someone's here today, and you're like, I'm seeing just fine. I'm seeing just fine. You're sitting in the back of the class. You're blaming Mrs. Johnson. But the truth is, it's you. And the people around you know it. The people who know you know it. And in some way, shape, or form, you've been squinting and blaming people for so long, you know it. But you're not seeing clearly. You're not seeing God, God clearly. You're not seeing yourself clearly. You're not seeing life clearly. You're not seeing your purpose clearly. You're not seeing meaning clearly. You're not seeing hope clearly. You're not seeing truth clearly. So maybe you're trying to bury it with an addiction or with a distraction or with a new promotion or whatever it might be that you try to bury it with. But the truth is you're not seeing so clearly. And what you need is surgery. That's what you need. You need surgery. God needs to reshape your cornea. He's going to do it through a laser. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, is what the Scripture says. Divides joint and marrow, thoughts and the intentions of the heart. But it requires that you sit down in His chair. He stands over you. And you trust him to give you eyes to see. And if you will, something starts to happen. We also thank God constantly for this. 
that when you receive the word of God, like you welcome someone into your house, which you heard from us, crazy how the word came through a person, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Here's my favorite part, which is at work in you believers. This I believe. If you will believe the word, it goes to work. It starts to change you. And it might cause some itchiness and blurriness and burning and discomfort. But if you just give it some time, things will start to get clearer. God will start to get clearer. Your life will start to get clearer. Your purpose will start to get clearer. Your past will start to get clearer. His love will start to get clearer. And before you know it, you're seeing ants on trees hundreds of miles away and you're going, I can see things I was never able to see. See, God's word might cut you and it might cause you some pain, but God's word also speaks the word over you that your heart needs to believe more than anything else and that there is a creator who's called you, who knows you, and who loves you. And his love for you is never going anywhere. It's not going to be canceled out by your foolishness. He is committed to you, more committed than you'd ever imagined, more loving than you'd ever deserved. And when that gets in your heart, when that gets in your soul, all of a sudden there's a foundation for identity and purpose and meaning and life. And that truth of God's word begins to reframe the way everything else looks. And when convictions come from God's word by God's spirit, they're bathed in humility because you know, only can I see through him. See, sometimes followers of Jesus have deep conviction, but little humility, and they're obnoxious in the world. Other times, followers of Jesus have deep humility, but little conviction, and they're ineffective in the world. But when followers of Jesus learn deep humility and deep conviction, when you have the convictions of a lion and the humility of a lamb, the peculiar glory of Jesus starts coming out of your pores and the people around you see God through you. This I believe. Just stand with me today. This I believe. I want to just invite you into a moment of reflection. Ask yourself, what's what's the final authority in my life? Where do my convictions come from? Are they a mixture of just things I picked up along the way? Where do my convictions come from? Do I have a framework for my convictions like the Apostles' Creed provides? Do I have a framework for what I believe, the essentials, the hills I'm willing to die on, the things I'm willing to live for? And do I know why I believe those things? Is it just because mom and dad said so? Is it just because grandma wanted me to? Is it just because my spouse forced me to come? Or do I actually think that convictions should spring from what I feel and think, as though all the planets revolved around me? Am I mixing and matching Ignoring the design of the manufacturer. 
Where do my convictions come from? And what has the final authority in my life? A good test is to ask yourself, when was the last time I allowed God's word to offend me and I adjusted my life because of it? And if you can't remember, it's a good evidence for where your convictions come from. But I believe that the next eight weeks really have the potential to be life-changing. Really. This might be the most significant eight weeks of our church this year. But it begins with a risk. To sit down in the chair. Trust the doctor. God, today I place your word over me. That's the prayer. God, today I place your word over me. All my questions aren't answered. I don't understand a lot of it. But I've seen enough. I've caught a glimpse of your glory. And it is stunning. The lion defends himself. And he is worth my allegiance. And so I put your word over me today. With your eyes closed, I just want to invite you to take that step. Take that step. Maybe this is all new to you and you've never really thought about where your convictions come from. I just want to call to you, trusting that the Spirit of God will do the work. I want to call to you to trust Christ. Trust who He is and what He's done. He's not one maiden among many. <laughs> he is life. And His life is the light of men. Or maybe you're here and you know the right answers to these questions. But you've lived with great conviction and little humility or great humility and little conviction. And you need God's truth to create symmetry in your life. And this prayer's for you. God, today I place your word over me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do a work among us that is supernatural right now. I pray that you would Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we would see like we've never seen before. And I pray that you would press us through reason, but ultimately through revelation to take that risk and say, I will build my whole life on this. I will bet my whole existence on this. I will wager every day that I breathe on this. This I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe in the gospel. I believe in eternal judgment. I believe in grace. And I believe that you are over me. I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe. These aren't cleverly devised myths. I believe that it's real. I put my trust in you now. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. 
If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97,000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.